0: Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong.
2: This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, writer, and director Dan Levy. In his early 20s, Levy began his career as a television host on MTV Canada, Throughout his nearly decade-long stint on television, he always harbored other, more creative aspirations. I think there was always a part of him that wanted to do the work he saw his father doing throughout his childhood. His dad, of course, is the great Eugene Levy of SCTV fame. And so eventually, together, Dan and his dad would create the hit program, Schitt's Creek. The series following the once-wealthy Rose family as they navigate their descent into poverty, arrived on the CBC and Pop TV in 2015. Six seasons later, it gained widespread recognition and went on to make Emmy history, winning a total of nine awards, the most ever for a comedy in a single year. But now, Dan has recently returned with a new project called Good Grief, in which he plays an artist grappling with the loss of his late husband together, along with his two best friends, he ventures to Paris to try to start anew. Here's a clip from the trailer.
1: I've been reading that the brain is like a muscle. That's why getting over a death is so hard. Because your brain has been trained to feel things for a person. When they go away, your head is still operating under the impression that it should feel those things for that person. Like... Muscle memory.
3: I think we'll hold off on the wheel for today.
1: Do I look older to you? I feel like I've aged a lot. No.
0: Yes! Your husband just died. You're allowed.
3: My God. Couldn't
0: really love you anymore.
4: You've become my ceiling.
1: I wanted to thank you both for this year. I would like to take us to Paris for the weekend. We all deserve some joy.
0: Yes, thank you. Where are we staying? I
4: you were
0: crazy. <gasps> this is sexy. You, you,
3: love me. you must miss him.
1: It's complicated.
3: Yeah, love is that way.
2: That was from Good Grief, now available to stream on Netflix. It marks the directorial debut for Levy, who began working on the picture after the death of his late grandmother in 2021. We talk a lot about the inspiration behind the movie at the top of this conversation. We also discuss the 70s films that inspired it, the importance of friendships in your 30s, how he worked to find his creative voice at a series of different jobs, And a whole lot more. This is Dan Levy.
1: Dan Levy. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really nice. You know, I think... Going out and promoting something like this is always like takes a lot out of you, which is at the end like a, a th- it comes from a place of gratitude. But I'm always struggling with like, are people tired of hearing my voice? Like, mm-hmm. what's going on? Well,
2: it's the first time your voice has been on this show. I
1: know, and I'm thrilled. I'm so happy to be here because <laughs> I listen. So it's you listen to the show. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you think? <laughs> well, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you the notes after,
2: Um, but I'm very happy to be here. Okay. Well, can we start with this new movie of yours? Sure. It's called Good Grief. Yeah. It's your directorial debut. Mm -hmm. You also star in the film. You wrote the film. But I want to pinpoint the origin of this movie, Mm -hmm. because my understanding that sometime in the pandemic, I think the end of 2021, the
1: Beginning of 2022. I have no concept of time, but yes, I'm going yes. to trust you on all of these dates. I have I have your <laughs> book right here.
2: It was around then that you found yourself on a long walk mm. at night mm-hmm. in the snow,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and suddenly you take out your phone, open the Notes app,
1: and an idea comes to you. What happened? It was a feeling. I had lost my grandmother in October, and... I wasn't feeling the sort of totality of emotions that I thought that I would, the like impact of it all. And for a long time, I was being very hard on myself for what I wasn't feeling. But I was also aware that I was in this collective grief that we were all in during the pandemic, which kind of numbed us to so much because the headlines were so disturbing and we were in this thing that we'd never experienced before. Yeah. and. And trying to isolate my sort of experience with my grandmother in the wake of this huge, you know, surrounded by, like, outdoor morgues and, I mean, weird things that we should never have really, you know what I mean? It was a weird time. I remember that. (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad. (laughs) And it was now December And I was taking my dog for a walk, and it was one of those beautiful nights in Toronto where the snow was slowly falling, huge snowflakes. It was all very cinematic and beautiful, and there was something about the imagery that was really moving to me. There was something about the fact that in the wake of all of this loss, there was still beauty Mm. all around us, that the earth was still continuing her journey. I don't know. I felt like very small, and I felt... In a way, everything came into context and everything was also kicked up in the air. And I knew that there was something to the curiosity that I was experiencing around grief that could make a, a, an interesting movie. What did the paragraphs? Oh, they were stream of consciousness. In,
2: in the notes, of, what did they sound like? It was like. And I'm when stand, was the last time you looked at it?
1: I don't think I have. I know we should get my phone. Can we do it? If you want. I would love that. Okay. Would you mind? I don't even, I mean, I'm going to have to find it, but yeah, it's there.
2: Michael or or Noah, can someone
1: bring it? Can someone try to, I have to even figure out what the date was. <laughs> okay. It would be 12. Here it is. Did you find it? Yeah, but, so I'm going to read it. <laughs> and then, you know, we'll see. It's long. <laughs> okay. Read as much or as little as you like. <gasps> okay. Wow, this is vulnerable for the first time. I was watching Halt and Catch Fire, and the dog was barking, so I took him for a walk. Outside it was snowing, but there was something about the snow that unhooked something in me. I felt unwillingly disarmed. There was an innocence or a kind of naivety to the way the flakes were clumsily falling. Slowly, gently, they were soft. They couldn't be disputed or repressed. They couldn't be killed or infected, and yet they were kind when they could be smug. The flakes varied in size and respected each other's space as they fell with a sort of purposelessness that begged for even a gentle wind to provide some guidance. I didn't know why the sight of them moved me. Maybe because they were offering such a stark contrast to my phone or the television I was watching. Maybe it was because it reminded me of being a kid, which reminded me of this collective loss of innocence. Maybe it's because it offered me sweetness in a year that took away my Nana, And yet, because of the enormity of it all, the sheer scope of this angry chunk of seconds and minutes and hours, the weight of their passing felt shrunken or disrespected or improperly acknowledged, inadequately mourned. Maybe it's because I looked back at the childhood home I had just left and saw a place that encased this emotional sediment that, under the falling snow, felt both nostalgic and unfamiliar. Maybe nostalgia, is something I thought I was learning to handle better, when, in fact, there's no such thing as handling something better. It's just the act of moving things from one drawer to another. Or maybe it was simply the falling snow defiantly whispering, not all things are corruptible, that brought me to my knees. I don't know if any of that even makes sense.
2: You wrote that in your Notes app? Yeah. I mean, that is, like, strikingly good. (laughs) I don't know what it is, frankly. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. So let's hold it for a second. Okay. That line that that stuck out to me was, I was unwillingly disarmed. Mm. That's what you wrote, unwillingly Mm -hmm. disarmed. To make this film, Mm -hmm. to turn that grief of losing your grandmother, Mm -hmm. then that same dog that you were on a walk with. Mm -hmm. and
1: Died a month later.
2: Right. Putting that into a script. Did you have to willingly disarm yourself to do that?
1: Yeah, of course. Or at least just go back to that moment and be okay with it. Mm. Be okay with kind of accessing it. But in a way, there was a safeguard of it not being my life and my story. Mm. So there was a kind of comfort. There was a safety net of knowing that I was telling other people's stories through which I was telling my own. And I think that helped. In a way. When you read that note now, what did you think of? I forgot that I was watching Halt and Catch Fire, <laughs> which is a great show. I don't know. I, I think it, it makes me want to do that more, frankly. Right. I don't journal. There was something in that moment that mm. really compelled me to write it down because I thought I'd I'd be upset with myself if I didn't try my best to encapsulate that feeling. That feeling. And that feeling is what created this film. That feeling is what created the the confusion of it all. So now that
2: the film's out in the world, mm-hmm. some people have seen it, some people listening haven't. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the movie from that note to this?
1: Well, it's a, it's a story about somebody who is also trying to make sense of a catastrophic loss in their life and turning to their friends, as I did during that time, to make sense of it all. And I don't think it resolves, but I think there's clarity. And I think in a situation like that, that's all you can hope for. Mm. I don't think it does resolve. The inciting incident that can't be resolved, that
2: can't quite be resolved. Mm -hmm. How would you explain that to people?
1: My character loses his husband and spends a long time grieving. And then in the process of grieving a version of his husband that he Mm -hmm. loved very much, he discovers a twist in the the history of their relationship or a a kind of betrayal that changes his perspective of what he had with his husband and also his relationship to the grief that he's experiencing for his husband. Mm. And therein grows a whole new conversation of, can you grieve the person you knew versus this other person that you are now discovering? Does what you had with a person mean something or is it permanently tainted? by something they've done that has led to a kind of feeling of betrayal. Right. And so it kind of explores that within the conversation of of friendship, which to me was really important. Your character, Mark, Mm -hmm. loses his husband. Mm -hmm. Then you and your
2: two best friends go to Paris. Go to Paris. They leave London, they go to Paris.
1: Under false pretenses. I have taken them to Paris. I have kind of discovered something about my husband that I am now going to Paris to try to solve. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't have the, I'm too shamed to admit to them that that's why I'm doing it. So I pitch it as a a friend's trip. Friend's trip. Which I do genuinely want it to be. (laughs) And yet it catches up and kind of forces a kind of crack in the friendships
2: there's just an ulterior motive there's an ulterior the motive simmering
1: trip. under the surface
2: the focus on the three friends in their mid to late 30s mm-hmm. it's not something we see a whole lot of it reminded me of of that movie an unmarried woman where, where mm. the friends are so much a part of mm-hmm. that lead character's life and in fact ends up becoming the loudest voice in the film mm-hmm. Why did you want? Well, it? I am an unmarried woman. Wow. <laughs> like, do you put that on your dating profile?
1: <laughs> unmarried woman? Yeah? yeah, sure. Um, for the people who get the reference are actually that would be a great. That's a great dating move. hook. You're welcome.
2: You're going to be married in like two years, and oh, f- it's going to be
1: great. I'm going to come back and I'm going to read you some stream of consciousness around the time that I met great. my husband. Beautiful. I'm glad we're going to get you back on the show already. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I love my friendships. I don't know whether that's something that has to do with the importance of friendships as like through the history of my life as a gay man. I think when you are in the closet and you're trying oh. to understand your life, like female friendships in particular for, mm-hmm. for a lot of gay men are really important. But I've always kind of grown up with my close friends as a kind of second family, as a kind of community and a source of encouragement and comfort. And then, you know, being unmarried, childless in your 30s forces a kind of depth to friendship that was not there in your 20s. And I just, the love Mm. and the complexity of that love and the fact that a lot of friendships in our 30s are treated like relationships. And yet movies don't give friendship the spotlight in the way that i think it deserves right so i knew that i wanted to tell a story about a love story about friendship if nothing more than to speak to my own experience
2: i like that one to be close friends with someone in their 30s forces a depth to it
1: yeah because i think in your 20s everything's fucking great you know like i mean it's not it's drama all the time but the drama is surface i'm at the tail
4: end of it you haven't lived
1: enough of your life (laughs) to get to like you know with every new decade comes an extra layer Mm -hmm. of life that's been lived Mm -hmm. and it does force deeper conversations and it forces you know confrontation between friends when bad habits start forming over decades and decades it's different Right. You've less accountability for each other in your 20s because there's less history. Because there's less history and there's frankly like your brain's still developing. Mm. I would be very curious to come back when you're at the end of your 30s and ask you about your friendships and how they've changed. That would be a decade from now uh-huh. and um yeah, we'll do like a link later thing and just continue <laughs> this conversation over three decades. Are we going to check in every year through the 30s? Why not? Okay. Okay. Well, it's a commitment you haven't agreed to, but I have. Yes. So.
2: And I'll make my decision at sure. the end of this. Okay. <laughs> I've heard you I've heard you describe the process of making this movie as quote, the most cruel I've ever been to myself. Mm. What the hell does
1: that mean? I'm like a very self critical person and I have standards for myself that are I think like impossibly high and it's something I'm working through. And through the experience of making this movie where I'm where I have to hold myself accountable, not just as an actor, but as a director and a producer and a writer. Mm. That's four different paths that I can be critical to myself. On the one hand, like you're directing a movie. You can't let it affect morale on set. You cannot let it affect your fellow actors. You have to kind of internalize that. I don't know. I take things personally because I care, but it's been an experience that's been really informative for me in terms of how I have to find better tools.
2: When you say you take things personally, what does that look like on set?
1: It doesn't look like anything on set. It's all when I go home. It's all on the weekends. It's all in the conversations that happen in advance. So Saturday and Sunday, what does that look like? (laughs) You know, it's just a lot of like analyzing the week. What could I have done better? What can constantly be improved? Is it always about what you could do better, or is it sometimes mm-hmm. about what other people can mm-hmm. do better? Yeah, but I'm more more—I'm way more empathetic to other people than I am to myself. And why is that? I don't know. I, I think I care so much, and I care so much about the people that have shown up, mm. the crew and the cast. I do not want to let them down, and I'm hyper-aware of that. And there's also a constant desire to make everything okay all the time, and accepting the fact that its that's simply not how— making a movie works you don't have that kind of control it's required a lot of um additional skills that i did not have before i walked into that
2: mm. experience the cost of caring mm-hmm. it can be a lot especially when directing something and you have to manage all these people mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of personalities at the heart of this movie is the loss that you've been talking about mm-hmm. the loss that inspired the film and then the loss that your character endures and I just want to pinpoint this moment because the film begins and ends in London. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Paris in between. But London seems to have always been a place where you've processed loss, mm-hmm. where you've gone to find yourself. Because 20 years ago, mm-hmm. when you were in film school at Ryerson University, mm-hmm. you fled Toronto to London after a breakup and what you've described as an eat, pray, love situation (laughs) what did that heartbreak feel like and and what did that time in london do for your grieving process
1: i think when you come out of caring for somebody but the level of care is not necessarily reciprocated this is the person you were dating this is the person i was dating which was sort of my first boyfriend My first love. First love. But I don't even know if it was love because I want to say that they always had a foot out the door and I knew that. Mm. I just found myself shrinking. I'm a very sort of anxious person and a socially anxious person. And I found myself shrinking even more to the point where I was fearful of picking up the phone. I all of these kind of very basic life things that I knew that I needed to have to be a successful adult mm. i was we're slipping through my grasp a little bit and i knew that i had to do something to pull myself out of the situation i was in to force myself to be a more outward facing person to uh-huh. force myself to be a little bit more confident and self-assured so i went and i got a job at icm at icm which was a talent agency so talking about a socially anxious person like i really jumped in headfirst into the deep end. This is immersion therapy this right is a Yeah, this was was wild. And it forced me to pick up phones, and it forced me to have conversations, and it forced me to talk to people in ways that I was not talking to people before. So you were basically an assistant for agents. I was an assistant for agents in, in London, yeah, okay. at ICM.
2: When the phone would ring mm-hmm. and you would pick it up, did you have like a standard line that Dan I'm Levy would sh- say? I'm sure I had
1: to say like, icm like dan speaking (laughs) and then people would be like who is this because i was new to the office so i had to deal with like famous british actors a wondering who this amer like canadian but who this like quote unquote american voice was on the other end of the line so ian mckellen calls Uh uh-huh and is wondering who i am and can he speak to his agent and i would try my best to navigate the system of like patching (laughs) calls through. It was anytime the phone rang, my heart would drop because I knew that I didn't quite have a firm enough grasp on the logistics of the phone system. Put them on hold, make the connection, somehow patch them through. I was never comfortable. When you signed up for the job, were you just like, yeah, I'll take daily panic attacks? I had no idea really what I was doing. I just needed a job in (laughs) London to survive. So it came along, and I said, "Great, I will do that." Since you did the job of assistant,
2: uh-huh. and you man the phones, uh-huh. are you really nice to work for now?
1: Because I like to understand th- how hard it is to do that job. I would like to think that I'm incredibly empathetic when it comes to the jobs of assistants.
2: It'd be great if you're like, "No,
1: actually, I'm, much I'm a piece <laughs> of shit to everyone," and also, it makes my understanding of how agents work. A little clearer. And how would you say they work? Well, it's interesting because when you are the person that takes the call and you look over and the agent is saying, like, I'm not home. Yeah. And you have to get back on the phone and say, I can't get them right now. Can I have them call you back? And then you actually get to a place where you're the person calling. Yeah. And you have the assistant say, I can't get them right now. I have to call you back. Does that happen to you? Of course. Even after all the Emmys? Oh, no, I don't. I don't. I guess now that you said that out loud, no. Well, they
2: renamed the Emmy Awards the Levy Awards. Did you know that? (laughs) Uh, I I was not aware of that. I wrote that dad joke this morning. Yeah, no, it's good. And I thought, it's so dumb, Uh but I thought you would enjoy it.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it probably would hit harder like two and a half years ago. Just in terms of, like, coming fresh off the wind, Right, right. Well, I asked you to come on the show two and, two and, half and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago, and I declined. You said no. Yeah. Yeah, profoundly. yeah, yeah, Well, that was... I was My head was inflated by all the Emmys. Right. So. And
2: you were still going over all the notes you wanted to give the program.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I said, absolutely not. We'll wait till he gets better at this.
5: <laughs> yeah.
1: He's not quite
2: exactly. there
1: yet. No, 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 no. We got to train him hard. At the end of the six months of... Manning the phones. I was offered a job. Right. At the agency. And and you said about that job,
2: it forced me out of my self-consciousness. At 20 years old, what were you self-conscious about? Because you don't strike me as
1: a self-conscious person. I had just come out of the closet. So I had Your spent... mom asked you at lunch. My mom asked me at a lunch. And then she said, do you want me to
2: tell your dad for you? Yeah. And you said, Yes. Yes. And then he,
1: I think, took it pretty well. He took it. He was very emotional and wanted the best for me. And everyone was very loving and accepting. It sounded like
2: exactly how all of us imagined Eugene Levy would respond to that situation. It actually
1: was. (laughs) If you can picture him being just a gentle, kind, warm person in response to his son coming out. How we thought about him for 50 years. Exactly. It's, It's that. It was lovely. But, you know, that's 19 years of living... A life that was not true right so self-consciousness comes from that anxiety Mm. comes from that it also comes from bullying it comes from most of your life being sort of made to feel different because you were slightly more feminine Mm -hmm. i suppose Uh if i were to reduce it to something like which i guess is a fear for young straight boys like slightly feminine acting other boys i don't know and then there's also a life of growing up with a parent who was a public figure and i didn't take that kind of public awareness well i would always hide I, i didn't like the fact that people would stare at us when we were out for dinner or stare at us when we went to a baseball game or whatever it would bother you It would bother me a lot to the point where I would often avoid it. Mm -hmm. And my dad and I actually had a really lovely conversation about it, like, a few years ago, just about those early days. Because I think he saw that as me not wanting to be around him. Right. When in actuality, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the attention we were getting anywhere we went. I see. You know, like... Went to summer camp and some kid in the cabin sent me a letter and said, like under my pillow, saying the only reason anyone here is friends with you is because they know who your dad is. So you grow up as a closeted gay person, but also as someone who's being made to feel sort of scrutinized for something that was completely out of my control. It didn't result in a ton of confidence.
2: Right. So when you eat, pray, love your way through London, Mm -hmm. head back to Toronto Yeah. Kind of reborn, but some kind of confidence. Yeah. You auditioned for this job at MTV. Yeah. They're looking for a new host, I think it was. And you said right when you got the job that the thing that was on your mind was how do I start my career as a television host without people holding my dad's career over my head? Mm
1: -hmm. I didn't tell anyone when I auditioned who I was. Mm. So I would show up and I would. I never talked about my family. I never talked about my relationship to my dad. It was very independent of that. And I never spoke about it when I did get the job for years. So, But it did hang over you. In what sense? It says here that
2: you didn't invite him to the shows. Yeah. That to me sounds like...
1: A it, conscious was, effort. Yeah.
2: Yeah, of course it is. Because of the kind of scrutiny you got at a camp or something
1: well, like that. Well, no, yeah. and also because of the reality of the situation that we live in. I mean, right. I still read people posting like on social media, you know, the only reason he has success is because of his dad. And I think, well, are you okay? Like Can I answer that? Yeah. No. Okay, of course great. not. It's a weird thing. But I think whatever people need to do to make themselves feel better. Right. And if it's easier to say this person earned their success for no other reason than yes. being the child of a of a person
2: there's a lot of conversation about nepotism there was a new york magazine article that detailed everyone's lineage i don't really care about that neither do i frankly what i want to hold what matters yeah at least to me is how you figured out how you began charting your way at mtv Mm -hmm. as an
1: entertainer it started even before that it started in high school when i was like we didn't have a drama department in our school so my friends and i would write produce and star in all the school plays. And my dad from a young age would ask if I wanted help with that, and I would always say no. So it's been in me for a long time to push him away when it came to my own creative outlet. When it came to the job as host and interviewer, yeah,
2: it's fascinating because you did grow up in a household of comedians and actors. Was there something about that job as host that felt different
1: enough? Or was there something that you liked about it that you didn't like in acting? I wanna say there was more to it than just opportunity. Up in Canada, when you're a, a host on television, you're also producing and you're also writing. And that excited me, the fact that I would have this all-encompassing experience that was not just the interview part, but it was also everything around it. We were a music television channel on a talk licensed network. Right. So we couldn't actually show music. We had to talk about music. Talk about it. It was very weird. I think in a way, it was continuing this, this test of like, okay, well now that I feel like I'm a little bit more socially confident, right? what if I took it one step further? It started with answering the
2: phones at ICM.
1: And then it was like, well, what if I went on camera and started to talk to people? It was all opportunity-based. It was all, yeah, I guess it was. Experience-based. It was. And and those experiences, particularly up in Canada, didn't happen that often. And I think for someone like myself, some of us have desires of, of wanting to do things and feeling capable of doing things, mm. but our fears stand in the way of us actually pursuing them. And so in this particular situation, it was another example of, I think I would be good at that job, but am I actually going to show up to this audition and go through the processes of putting yourself out there. At that point, I f- I had to. What was the fear
2: at that time? Is it a fear of failing, of, of not being good enough? Of-
1: yeah, I suppose it was like a fear of exposure, like a fear of like putting yourself in a vulnerable situation that was at the mercy of someone else's kind of jurisdiction mm. and doing something that was uncomfortable and i think you know psychologically i don't know whether it was because i'd lived a lot of my life feeling uncomfortable that like adding to the discomfort was probably not right something i wanted to do but it got to a point where i realized i had i had to do it if i wanted to to get to where i wanted to be well i feel like we should
2: watch an example of you doing it oh my god on the program do you have that i do have that oh no this is from 2009 what are we watching This is you on MTV 2009. This is um, you doing a kind of Devil Wears Prada bit as a kind of makeshift intern at Fashion Magazine. All right, here we go.
1: Well, we ran into problems already, and I've been there for about 45 minutes. I had to go and pull shoes at Holt Renfrew, but they only had two of the three shoes, so then the guy, like, gave me options.
3: And you picked other ones?
1: Should I have just made the executive decision to pull a third pair?
3: Probably not.
1: Oh. I think they were also the most expensive pair. I don't
3: know if you
1: should have pulled a third. Well, I'm in the cab. On the way back, I pulled the third pair, so...
3: They let you take a cab?
1: Well, they told me to take the subway.
3: Well, that's because the subway is faster, Dee.
1: Hello? Listen, I wore worse outfits than that. So I'm at least glad that I was like in a nice blazer in a,
2: no, no, we, a we, deep we, V. We picked the we picked the clip where yeah, you look
1: yeah. cute. I looked that. good. Shockingly. You look the same. Well now, thanks. The exact same. <laughs> well, you know 15 years ago. Fifteen years ago. Twenty five? Yeah. To forty? How do you look the same? Have you seen my dad? I know, he's, he's really... The man is 76 years old and looks like he has never same. looked better. Yeah. So I do turn to him in those moments and think, if this is what's in store for me, great. I think it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on a performance level, on,
1: on a comedic level... I could have done more, for sure. <laughs> I was definitely playing a passive role when I should have, as a television presenter, been a little bit more in control. Right. I don't know what that was or how it made it onto TV, because frankly, like, if we are putting this on a scale of, like, one to deeply compelling, I wouldn't find that in any way interesting. Where would you put that, on the one to ten scale? I would shelve that. Also, there was a point where my glasses just got bigger and bigger, comedically large. Right. Was that on purpose? Yeah, I think it was a style thing at the time. There was, like, you know, it was, like, the birth of like, hipster fashion. And you wanted to be the face of that. And I clearly wanted to be the face of that. (laughs) And my mom would constantly ask why I wore the things on television that I wore. And you would say? And I would say, you know what? Self-expression, mom, lean in. I want to be the face of hipsters. I want to be the face of Urban Outfitters hipsterdom. (sighs) Okay, so at some point you move on from this. You have... I was there for, I think, eight and a half years. Eight years. So tell me, yeah. at,
2: at the end of eight and a half years of, of mm-hmm. being on MTV, mm-hmm. do you remember the exact moment where you knew you needed to do something else?
1: Yeah, I was hosting. We were asked to host the red carpet for the MTV Movie Awards, and I did it, and I was so uncomfortable. And I might have cried after. Why? Because it was so overwhelming for me and I was so bad at it and the pressure was so intense. You get a, if you're a red carpet person, you get a binder of every single person that is going to walk the red carpet. Yeah. And you have to research every single person that is walking the red carpet. You have to know what they're there for, what they're nominated for. Are they a presenter? What's the film they have pra- like coming out? Basically, Tony Hale and Veep. Absolutely. Except for me, when my nerves activate, I forget everything. Right, And so my co-host ended up having to, like, do most of the questions because I was a mess. Oh. I always knew that hosting television was not for me. I accepted the challenge. I had received some success from a television show that I did up there a talk show that became quite big this up in Canada. The, the it was hills called The After, after show. show. Yeah. It was like, it, well, there was The After Show and then there was The Hills After Show. Okay. The After Show was essentially like a watch what happens live. I want to say before watch what happens live. Mm. So we would just dis- like d- dissect popular culture and talk about it through the lens of, like, 220-somethings who wanted more for everybody. And you liked that. And I did, but it was something in the back of my mind. I knew that this was not it for me. I knew that I was not in a comfort zone that made me super excited. Mm. I appreciated it all. I appreciated the freedom and the fact that we were able to produce things and write things. I think so much of what I ended up doing after that, right. I can sort of link back to that experience. But it just stopped being fun. And I knew that it was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And sure enough. And sure enough, I left. And when you leave, yeah.
2: you start to develop this idea for what would become Shit's Creek. Yeah. I'm curious because you start to think of your dad as a potential partner in this mm-hmm. project. Over three weekends in a row, you go to his house mm-hmm. and the two of you start working out what this show would be. Mm-hmm. What did a Dan and Eugene Levy writer's room look like in those early stages? We
1: were in, I would go over to my parents' house and we would sit in the living room and we would start brainstorming. Is a lot of yes anding? It was a lot. You know what it was actually? a lot of character work. I mean, my dad is like an incredibly thorough person and moves at a much slower pace than I do. So instantly you look at a situation like that and I am like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And he's saying, no, we have to go one step at a time. And it made sense. And I didn't quite understand it at the time, but now I do. And I think it is the most important thing I've learned from him in the, in the course of writing something was sitting in those early days and really figuring out who your characters are.
2: So what did that look like?
1: We would go one character at a time. We would start at the very beginning. Where did they go to school? What was their high school experience like? What were they like as kids? Where did they get jobs? Answering their entire biography. I don't know whether it was the second city of it all or the work that he did with Chris Guest that really forced a kind of meticulousness around character development. And funnily enough, from those early like couple weeks when we were really diving deep into each each of those characters, so many jokes, storylines ended up on the show from those pieces of paper that we were like loose leaf paper that we were writing on. And it's now the only way that I can work. It's amazing that you went from ten years
2: prior not inviting him to your shows at MTV. Mm-hmm to being comfortable enough to go, actually, I want to make this thing with you. Mm -hmm.
1: You have to let it go. There does come a point where it's important to do something for yourself, but also I do have someone who I respect. And, you know, like growing up, Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman, these movies were like defining movies for me as a fan, not just someone who was the child of someone who made it. You could love those movies. I can love those movies for what they are. Even though-
2: it's your father.
1: I can look at those movies and say they are hugely important contributions to the world of comedy.
2: After the break, we get into all things Shit's Creek with our guest, Dan Levy.
4: that's T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days
2: So when the two of you get into a room mm-hmm. and you create this show, was part of Schitt's Creek's premise born out of all the time you had spent in the past eight years prior thinking about The Hills and the Kardashians of and was. the reality TV?
1: I had Is been, that where it came from? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had been steeped in in culture for eight years. We were starting to understand through popular culture how wealthy people lived. I feel like a decade before, and you could, you could watch like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and that was the only access you had to right. the way that very, very rich people lived. Now, we feel like we have access to it because the front doors to their homes are quite literally opened, and cameras are now inside in documentary-style ways. For better and worse. For I'd better, well, 100%. I'd say worse. I would say it's not helped us. Yeah. Most of those television shows are rooted around conflict over the smallest little thing. So I, I have a, f- a, a theory that that actually affects our psychology. Mm-hmm. So to me, a television show that took advantage of this collective consciousness that we have of like how people live. Yeah, the And explored the fallout of what would happen to these people, these families, these personalities, when money was not the defining factor in their life, felt compelling.
2: Basically, if those reality shows continued to open the doors long after they would ever let them stay open.
1: And yet, given how gross some people's desire to seize on capitalizing on people's sadness, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened.
2: On one hand, you're subverting our like collective sickness mm-hmm. and dependency on reality TV. On the other hand, the show has a kind of evergreen, timeless quality yeah, to it. it. It feels very much in the spirit of the Honeymooners or Beverly Hillbillies or mm-hmm, Mayberry. Mm-hmm. But Hillbillies and Mayberry mm-hmm. ended in 1971. Honeymooners ended in 1956. You are a spry, fresh-faced 40-year-old right now yeah, who was not around for those programs, mm-hmm. but was using those shows as as touch points, as reference mm-hmm. points. Was it your way of bridging the kind of generational divide between You and your father?
1: In a way, I think. Listen, I grew up watching I Love Lucy. I grew up watching the Beverly Hillbillies. There are television shows that were so formative to my sense of comedy. And it was because I would watch the Beverly Hillbillies at my grandparents' house. It would be on all the time. Beverly Hillbillies and M.A.S.H. And then Nick at Night would run I Love Lucy. And the joy that they brought and the deep laughs that they brought. So, you know, my dad obviously had a much clearer reference to all of those older shows. Did he like those shows? He did very much, yeah. I mean, The Honeymooners was like, is something he talks about. There's a Christmas episode that he'll he'll try to put on every holiday, which is incredibly moving, actually. It's really beautifully written and performed. You said he tries to put it on. Some years we're feeling more sensitive, and we'll say yes. Um, <laughs> But it was. And I think that's what the show really ended up being was nostalgia with my sort of younger contemporary cultural references overlapped over top Mm. and then the clash of what that is. And that's what I think made it feel so inviting for people of all different ages.
2: When you look back on this chapter that's now closed, Mm -hmm. but the show very much still lives on in people's hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. How do you understand the sensation
1: it became? Like, Does it make it... sense to you? No, it doesn't. And in a way, I don't want to understand it because making the show was so special. We were so kept out of that cultural conversation because, frankly, people didn't really start watching the show until we'd finished it. We were able to make 80 episodes of television up in Canada completely on our own with little to no network notes. With the complete support of the CBC in Canada and Pop Network in America, Mm. which was the former TV Guide Network, which meant that I think it was something like 90% of our households were still in standard definition in America. Mm. So the show was airing on TVs in standard definition. That's how low stakes this show was. I look much better in SD. (laughs) It does do wonders for the skin. So we had nothing but ourselves to use as an audience. And obviously, like you know, the Canadian audiences that were finding the show, but the numbers are small. Did that bother you? Not at all. For me, it was you were about, fine with a smaller audience. We knew that it was going to be a small audience because we weren't on NBC. You know, they passed because of the name. Oh shit, Greg. <laughs> yeah. I thought you meant the Levy name. I thought, oh, it's a good name. Well, yeah, there was, you know, my dad has a horrible reputation in this industry. Yeah. So our expectations were low, and it really came down to, please let us have another season to continue to tell this story. Right. It felt so special to be doing this away from the pressure of ratings and sweeps week and celebrity cameos and all of these things that are required by a lot of American television to keep and hold ratings. And the fact that it succeeded in the way that it did is an indication of the fact that we need to give people, creators, writers, television shows, space and time to grow. Because it is in, it is the ultimate slow burn, Schitt's Creek. It took two full seasons of the show before our family even said, I love you, to each other. And yet, all of the emotional impact and all of the emotional connection that fans find, that feel for the show, come from every moment of sincerity being earned. Mm. And that, I think, is where the depth of emotional connection comes from.
2: Speaking of the slow burn, it, it runs from 2015 to 2020. Mm-hmm. And for so many people, it was this, this beacon, this, this light in a pretty dark era.
1: Yeah, it was grim.
2: Not that what's followed has been much better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the other part of it was because it imagined a world that was softer, Mm -hmm. a little kinder, free of homophobia. Mm -hmm. And I think people grabbed onto that. I think they saw it as aspirational. And so to bring us back to the beginning of this talk, how do you see this new film in relation to Schitt's Creek? Is it an extension of the world you were building? Is it a kind of bookend? Is it a snapshot of what you feel life is like having lived through the pandemic
1: on the other side of Schitt's Creek? How do you see that? I think the one thing that we weren't scared of when making Schitt's Creek was sincerity. This is also coming off of an era of TV where you weren't considered edgy comedy unless you were making fun of someone or being incredibly sort of vile or, you know, there was this world of edgy comedy that really came at someone's expense. It was mean-spirited. It oh. was hard. And it's it was the lack of fear around being soft that I think really contributed to this new wave of feel-good TV. You know, you look at, like, the success of Ted Lasso. Right. That came off of everything that we had sort of done that really kind of was a great sort of next step in the storytelling of kind TV. They give you residuals for that, right? Yeah, we receive a ton of residuals. From Apple? From from Apple, yeah. Um, I think this film has that fearlessness when it comes to touching on sincerity and earnestness and warmth and honesty I could have gone down a path where I wanted to make it edgier and I wanted to make it more kind of, you know, hard, but that wasn't my experience. Mm. And so it emboldened you to make the film. It emboldened me to tell a story that was rooted in something very sincere and not be fearful of that sincerity, uh-huh. even though oftentimes it's criticized.
2: I think for context, we should um maybe sit with the scene in the film. Okay? That does offer the sincerity that you're talking about, and to me, may be the strongest scene in the movie that is an amalgamation of all the projects you've worked on. Mm. So why don't we take a look at this? This is from your film, Good Grief. It comes toward the end of the picture,
1: mm.
2: and it features you sitting across from your financial planner
1: mm-hmm.
2: as the two of you are having a heart-to-heart. Yeah, Celia Emery.
3: So the estate agent called to say they'd like to list the London house next week. Okay. You're okay with that? I am, yeah. That house isn't mine. It was always his.
1: I feel like you're not into this
3: idea. My opinion is of little relevance here. Well,
1: you manage my finances. I'm selling my house. Your opinion isn't irrelevant.
3: I trust you're not running away. From him, I mean. Mm. My wife died 12 years ago this month. I ran. From her. From us. Physiology has a clever way of protecting us from what we perceive to be a threat to our bodies, which is why the more we close ourselves off, the less we feel. At the time, that benefited me. I got on with it. Went back to school. Studied finance. Built up a successful business. Nice house. Good clothes. Never having desired anyone else. And you can survive that way until the usualness of it all starts creeping in. And the new life you'd built as a refuge begins to feel like a void. Because it turns out to avoid sadness it's also to avoid love.
2: That's a heavy one. Mm-hmm. Where does it land with you?
1: I don't mean for this to sound like in any way self-congratulatory or like arrogant, but there is this amazing thing when you write something and you get the the honor of watching an actor like Celia Imrie take words that you've written. Transform it. And lift them to places you had no idea they could sort of live. Yeah. So for me, it's, I mean, watching it, it's more just about her performance than anything else. But, you know, that was a, A hugely kind of clarifying moment for me as a writer to write that scene. And it just happened. It was just on the page at the end of the day. There wasn't a ton of thought behind it. It wasn't like, oh, I know what's going to be impactful for an audience. It was just, it was a very cathartic sort of day of writing that resulted in something quite concise, I think, in terms of its intention.
2: In some ways, is it not the cleaner, clarified version of the notes app message to yourself?
1: I suppose it is. Now that I've reread it. It was the closest I could get to understanding that feeling. That feeling, yeah.
2: It's kind of remarkable that it turned into that.
1: Listen, it's it's an amazing thing. I I like, you know, I feel very lucky that the words came to me. <laughs> From that. Because sometimes they don't. They often don't. Yeah, they often don't. For most of us. But I don't think I could have said that as a person, yeah, it's a different thing. Sometimes I have to write things to people because I'm better at articulating myself when I'm writing things down. But you
2: needed to pause, halt, and catch fire. Mm-hmm. You needed the snow to hit at the right moment mm-hmm. with your dog that had to pee. Mm-hmm. Pandemic that mm-hmm. was creating a kind of uh, madness inside mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. All the conditions that produced the note that we started the show with mm-hmm. delivered us here Mm -hmm. to that scene. It's pretty cool. The line, the more we close ourselves off, the less we feel. To avoid sadness is also to avoid love. I've seen the film a couple times and Mm -hmm. I've watched that scene a bunch and I was thinking as we're sitting here towards the end, Mm -hmm. not just where those lines landed with you, but they feel like a reminder for yourself. Something to hold on to on the other side of having made this movie of now having put the film out into the world and i wonder if you've been able to hold on to that sentiment have you been able to hear those
1: words i think so i mean i think in a way it's like those kinds of affirmations and reminders are are important and i think oftentimes like we revert back to old tendencies and ways of, of coping. But, you know, I think that's, especially now that it's out and it's always a, it's a strange thing to like make something really personal and then realize that it's also for public consumption mm. and public judgment. And like, um, that's like a side of it that, you, that I wish I could just kind of fast forward through. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um it takes a lot for me to acknowledge that it, that I'm proud of myself for this experience. That still takes a lot. It still takes a lot. Yeah, I think it'll always take a lot. We're working through it though, so that's good at least.
2: You and I are? We,
1: yeah. Or You mean the royal we? <laughs> yeah, the royal we. And you and I. This has been immensely therapeutic, this conversation. How has it been though, putting the film out?
2: You're talking about reviews that are positive, there's reviews that are negative. Uh-huh. I've read some beautiful ones. Yeah. My friend, Alyssa Wilkinson, I uh, wrote a review on The Times that I thought was just excellent.
1: Absolutely meant the world. You know, you put a movie out about grief, and you put a movie about out about loss and people's relationship to it. Mm. It's not something that has, you know, I expected it to be a polarizing experience for people. You're either going to get it or you're not. Right. And it's okay if you don't get it. And if you do get it, that's great. I think the letters that I've received since this movie has come out have have really encouraged me to keep going. When you see people outside of journalism, when you actually have human beings writing to you saying, I haven't been able to articulate my feelings around the grief that I'm experiencing and I watched this movie and I found great comfort in it and thank you, that's a wonderful thing. Grief is not, doesn't have to be an isolated experience that everyone around us Everyone in every space that we walk into is grieving something. We just don't talk about it. So the more that we can and the more that we do, the more I think there might be comfort for people who are experiencing grief and not feeling like there's anyone around them to help. As we're talking about people's responses, I I
2: just thought of something. We mentioned the critics' response, Mm -hmm. the audience' response. But this is the first film— Mm-hmm. that doesn't involve your father, that is inspired by the passing of your mother's mm-hmm. mom. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated because when you were on the set of Shit's Creek and you and your sister were in a scene, mm-hmm. I would heard that when your dad was at the monitor, he would mouth all the words that the two of you would be doing in a scene.
1: Yeah, he probably, he was like dance momming. Like like an excited soccer dad
2: watching their kid play. Mm -hmm. And so with this film, Mm -hmm. when the two of them watched it, Mm. what did they say? How did they hold it?
1: I mean, it's dedicated to my grandmother. The gallery at the end of the film is, is named after my grandmother. So she's kind of all through it. For me, it was the greatest expression of kind of love that I had. It's it's all I could do right. because in the moment I wasn't feeling what I wanted to feel. So I think they were, I mean, they were very moved by it. I think they were caught off guard. I didn't tell them anything about it. They went to the premiere not knowing even what the movie was about. So I think they were really overwhelmed by what it was and what it was saying and how close it was to, to home. Mm. And I think they were impressed. <laughs> and my mom's a real tough critic. Is she? Yeah, I respect it, but she'll tell it like it is. Like, she doesn't sugarcoat stuff. And so to feel like I had impressed her was a really sort of special thing. She said you did a good job. She said, what did she say? The movie ended, and she goes, well, she was crying (laughs) a lot. And she said, this is like all my favorite movies from the 70s. Like, you've made something that reminds me of my favorite movies. And that was like a
2: unmarried woman kind of movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: Just a time when pace was not at the forefront, when our attention spans were a little bit more generous. And they've now watched it many times at home. Mm. The movie theater at the end of their block was playing the film. So they would I think they went to see it a couple times in the movie theater. There was photos that they were taking with like fans. So great. My dad was like in the movie theater. They um it's not, you know, it's nice, and I'm I'm happy that I was able to do something for my family to make something that celebrated like one of our family members, in a very sort of indirect way, but was mm. was to me the greatest expression of love that I had.
2: Well, it took two seasons of Schitt's Creek for the family to express love to mm. each other, <laughs> and I'm glad it didn't take as long. For your folks to say the same in this film.
1: Yeah. It was we have a very different family than the roses. I, I'm I'm sure you far do. more loving. Far
2: warmer. That will be the second podcast we do together. <laughs> exactly. And Thanks. uh yes, grief is not something people want to talk about on a podcast, and yet uh we've done it. So we've done it. This is the time. If you have any notes, though, this would really
1: be the moment. <laughs> I never have notes. You Listen, you know how good you are at your job. I, you don't need to. I could just keep talking. But just at this point, I think I'll just keep doling out compliments and then just cut me off. Go straight to a to an ad. Yeah, we'll go. Right. <laughs> um, I will say, uh,
2: yeah, I'll do the link later pod stuff with you. I agree to the terms and conditions. Okay, great. We can keep checking in. Mm-hmm. Photo proof. Photo proof. Yeah. And until then, I thank you for this time. It's meant a whole lot. Oh, it's meant a lot to me, Dan Levy. Thanks. Take care.
0: You too.
4: That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. I'll save you a seat. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days
2: And that's our show. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your podcasting. If you want to share the program, you can tag us at TalkEasyPod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. All of this really does help new listeners find the program. I want to give a special thanks this week to the teams at 42 West and Netflix. I also want to thank Michael Diamond and our guest today, Dan Levy. His new film, Good Grief, is now available on Netflix. If you want to check it out, you can visit our website at talkeasypod.com. If you want to hear other conversations with actors, writers, directors, I'd recommend Quinta Brunson, Chris Elliott, Abby Jacobson, Steven Yeun, Bob Odenkirk, and Steven Soderbergh. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs that come in cream or navy or our vinyl record with Fran Liebowitz. you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shanoi. Our photographs are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Starrs, Carrie Brody, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambra, Justine Lang Malcolm Gladwell Greta Cohen and Jacob Weisberg I'm Sam Fragoso thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy I'll see you back here next week with a new episode until then stay safe and so long
4: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business